0: Julie Brock is the author of two previous books, The End of Travel, 1999, and The Woman Downstairs, 1993. Her recent work has appeared in The New Yorker, Plowshares, Literary Mama, Maisonneuve, The Hat Review, uh, and The Walrus, among other publications. A Montreal native, she lives in San Francisco with her husband and daughter and two enormous geriatric goldfish.
1: I do indeed.
0: Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: It's nice to be here. Thanks.
0: I woke up this morning in a nice warm bed.
1: Sounds good so far. Yeah,
0: cozying up to a nice warm partner. And the radio came on and told me that 12 people had been slaughtered in Africa and that a couple of people had been blown up in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Now, this happens in some of your poems in the Monkey Ranch which has just won the Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much. This does happen in, in the book, it happens in our lives, it happened in your morning. I'm always aware of how the brute facts of the external world are crashing in on our waking in our relatively safe Western existences.
0: That sort of juxtapositioning of shocking, upsetting violence or reality that you introduce in very abrupt ways in the poetry, mm-hmm. why are you doing that?
1: I think the main thing is that I have a daughter and when we were handed this little bucket, one of these car seats with a handle, you know, as one is at a hospital, and walked with this child out into the world the sense of responsibility of keeping her fed and alive and well and happy and safe and safe was so daunting in that first afternoon for both her dad and me and i think that one gets a really increased sense of of the world's crevasses <laughs> and all the things that can go wrong and all the things that do go wrong every day kids are so vulnerable and mm-hmm. so trusting And I think that that's something that I've always felt, but that was really deepened at that point in my life.
0: Yeah, in fact, when you say that, that takes me right back to a similar experience. I think any any parent can relate to that. Just this precious cargo... That you have in the car that you 're driving on the highway, right. these guys are they 're too close
1: absolutely know? and we on that one first afternoon we only had about four blocks to drive, and my husband was a was a basket case yeah. at the wheel
0: well one of the things that comes to mind when when reading these poems for me is I think it was Neil Postman that talked about the fact that the media brings all sorts of chaos and violence and anxiety into our lives that we can't do anything about because it takes place on the other side of the world.
1: It's filtered. It comes into our lives through that strange filter and through that strange glass. (laughs) Yeah, we're distanced from it, and yet we're part of it.
0: Yeah, it invades our our lives.
1: Absolutely. And if it doesn't, then I think we're we're in even bigger trouble. Living in the States, I get the feeling (laughs) of... An absolute willed lack of consciousness about what goes on outside of the country.
0: Despite all the people. news reports.
1: Yeah, despite all the news reports.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's, there's a lot less international coverage in the States than there is in Canada, too. It's always interesting to go back and forth and to see that. They're really focused on their own navels.
0: <laughs> well, they're the center of the universe. Of
1: course. They're the elephant.
0: Speaking of animals and tone... I, I want to talk a bit about this delightful cover. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you like her. It's impossible not to smile <laughs> and to bond with those beautiful, innocent eyes.
1: <laughs> She's something. I'm very fond of her. I have one good friend who confessed to me. I think that people respond to that cover either as you did and as I did or as my friend did. He told me, sort of bashfully, He, I think he was kind of embarrassed by it, but he said... I have to tell you, I can't leave that book face up. I can't look (laughs) at that ape. I find it too upsetting. He he really didn't like her because she's dressed as a a human would be.
0: Well, as a human, but a washerwoman or a...
1: Carmen Miranda, maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It it captures so much, I think. Personally, when I read a book of poems, the tone is, is the thing to me that typically defines whether or not I'm going to like it and connect with it. Right. And the fact, first of all, that this cover captures a childlike innocence and a a definite humor, Mm -hmm. but she's also got these great big hairy arms. (laughs) They're beautiful, aren't they? Well, again, they're funny, but they're also... That's a healthy-looking set of pipes. Well, she is
1: an orangutan. Yeah, and she's that's, those are simian arms, yeah? But her expression is what I love. There's that absolute guileless kind of animal, s- small child-like directness.
0: There's a lot of many references to, to children and to animals. Why is that?
1: <laughs> well, on a basic level, when you hang around with small children, as I did for, I now have a teenager, but for those years, you um, spend a lot of time looking at animals, stopping for animals on the street, being in zoos with caged animals. And you're also reminded of their creatureliness and our creatureliness through being with them because there's something so creaturely about small kids and, again, their vulnerability. Mm -hmm. It's always coming back to that. The fact that they are completely dependent on the caprices of adults, whether well-intentioned or not.
0: They're so trusting.
1: They're trusting, exactly, yeah they're trusting yeah. whether they should be or not
0: so there's no kind of alarm bell that would go off
1: there is but i don't even know that they know they are alarm bells yet talk to them in 30 years and
0: <laughs> and that concerns you it does humans take so long to grow up
1: yeah infancy that goes on forever and ever I was just reading a poem in a small magazine called Rattle, an American magazine. I was just reading this last night about a father throwing his child down outside a bookstore and throwing her against a wall again, and, and the speaker in the poem intervening and thinking he was about to get beat up by the father. But the, the point at which the father has thrown this child down against a brick wall three times, a little girl in a sort of torn dress, and, and picks her up, and offers her his hand, and she takes the hand, and they walk into the bookstore. The speaker in the poem says, at at that point, I turned away and walked on. But that moment of just, you know, there's no option to trust, in some cases, the most untrustworthy adults.
0: It's funny when you say that, I think of this particular moment in Lolita, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: when you realize that, wait a minute, he's raping her. It's a startling moment, but you're saying then that that poor little child couldn't just walk away.
1: There was was nowhere to go, yeah, and the man intervening was probably not a welcome thing for her because it would be a spur to the father's
0: anger. In a previous interview, I've heard you talk about this creatureliness and our vulnerability, but also our will. Could you clarify that?
1: Well, I think some of the poems, not so much of the, the poems about children, but some of the poems, there's a poem called The Change, where I'm sort of arguing with things as they are. It's sort of a midlife poem. I think there's a point at which our creatureliness and the will we impose on the lives we lead come into conflict, which gets kind of interesting. <laughs> what we think of is our self-determination and our animal natures are sometimes uneasy bedfellows.
0: i to go deeper with that one.
1: Let me think. I'm I'm just trying to think of a poem that... The Change?
0: There we are, 23. Could you read that for us? Sure.
1: The Change. So I've done what my body was made for. My eight-year-old is all legs, careening down the basketball court, and I do acknowledge the pulls and pushes of tides, wounds of love and such, even if I stop short at crystals and meet the plankton music. My husband hums in the house, my daughter sings while she plays. I'm hunched at the kitchen table, jaw clenched, staring down a blank grocery list when that stringy mouse, the one who holds keys to this place, scrabbles across the awful linoleum for the first time today, and my shriek is so sudden and muscular and primal I know I've pulled something in my neck. If this new tin cat does its job, I swear I'll carry the jumpy, humane contraption straight to the park in my bathrobe, calmly raise the metal lid, and let the mouse go with a kind, steady hand. I'll be better than I am, pretend to love this creature, I'd rather drown. What does it mean to love the life we've been
0: given? Yeah, now that's an ending that twists your mind around a bit.
1: I stole that ending. Huh? Those two lines are stolen from um, Suzanne Buffum from a poem of hers. I hope that it does what I wanted it to do, which is blatantly just come out and do that sort of lyric utterance of what this poem is about. I jokingly call it my Auntie mary Oliver poem. Here's this sort of domestic harmony, and all I can think about is killing this,
0: this creature you'd rather drown.
1: Yeah, that's what I was talking about with the animal and the so-called civilized
0: self. What does it mean to love the life we've been given? Before we let go of that line, and I do love Meet the Plankton music. We just deadpanned it. It's a great line.
1: There's a lot of Meet the Plankton music in California. They can't just let the jellyfish be jellyfish. They have to put lights on them and play that New Age stuff.
0: But we're talking about this mouse, and what does it mean to love the life we've been given? So that mouse's life hasn't been given to us. We love our own life, mm-hmm. but we don't like it to be interfered with, with the bestial or the creaturely, the, Yeah, the creatureliness.
1: Yeah, I, I think that maybe I, I felt that I ought to have been more, more like Mary Oliver. You know, If Mary Oliver wrote that poem, that mouse would be ascending. That would be a Catholic mouse, and that mouse would spread its little mouse wings. It would be the most symbolic mouse, and whatever the speaker in the poem did would only be something to help launch that mouse back into its mouseness. So (laughs) maybe it's about wanting to be better than I am in all ways.
0: You wish you would love this dirty little creature.
1: And I wish I, I loved the rest of my life all the time, the way I felt at that moment I ought to.
0: So there's a sense of guilt.
1: Yes. Among other things.
0: (laughs) So the change is...
1: I'll let you finish that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: of course I can, because you have, with these poems, uh, any poem, Mm -hmm. you leave a, a door open for the reader to get into it.
1: I think what I meant by the change was simply midlife and hormones and feeling depressed and 50, I suppose, when I wrote that poem. And seeing all this exuberance around me on that particular morning. Not feeling too exuberant, and I really, really hate the linoleum in our <laughs> our rented flat.
0: Yeah, you mentioned <laughs> linoleum elsewhere, and I don't think it it gets very good treatment.
1: Goodness, you, maybe we do one of those frequent word things.
0: Yeah, well, daughter is a, is definitely close to the top. I mm-hmm. think I was most impressed with the first poem this morning after an execution at San Quentin. The very last line was it was a killer and fallen asleep. On her knees, now you're you're talking about your daughter being to the zoo, but that image of a daughter on her knees, you can't help but think of someone being executed with a gun up against their head. Yeah, or Um, just
1: pleading for their lives. Yeah,
0: throughout the poem, there's mention of uh, more wretch than howl, of a howler monkey that you see at the zoo.
1: It's a terrible sound. Have you ever heard a howl? Yeah,
0: a lot of subtle reference to death in this rather innocent
1: except that I, I throw all my cards on the table with the title
0: you do but the connection really hits right at the very end you get that image
1: right and
0: then you work your way back through the poem right. that some kind of trick that you'd like to play on um, the reader? Or?
1: I didn't think of it as a trick. San Quentin is is very close to where we live and this execution was the first execution that had taken place there in quite some time and I had students at USF who, who were taking law classes and were out there you know doing vigils for this guy and, and there was no stay of execution and so I was very hyper aware of this thing going on that evening and the light from the prison is so harsh and so invisible from such a distance, out on the water, that I, I just had this image of, of those searchlights. And I had, in fact, spent a day listening to these monkeys and watching my little monkey. And was really just sort of sad and struck that night. Went in to check on her, and she was sleeping with her bum in the air as, you know, mm-hmm. kids in cribs. She was just getting out of a crib at that point, will often do. And there it was. <laughs> you know, I didn't intend it to be a trick, but it—it it, it was um, such a supplicant's position. It was sort of stunning.
0: A you know, trick is cheapening it. I don't—I don't mean that. I, yeah. but really, what I mean is, as the recipient of these words, the image that you withheld until the end was one that really connected with the we title. With the
1: title, yeah.
0: You talk about the, the collection coming together. There's a tone that unites them. Yeah. What is that tone?
1: There's a couple of tones. <laughs> There's a couple of poems that have a very emphatic voice and a very sort of driving... That's not one of them. Some of them are more are more um, reflective. I tried to arrange this book tonally because it had no obvious connection. I mean, I could throw out that first poem right up front and say, oh, okay, here's maternal instincts, here's protecting children... Here's the larger world. Here's the creatures who are also at the mercy of the larger world. Here's the disconnect between all of these things. And I could sort of I sort of foregrounded that poem because I thought, okay, that'll touch on all of these things. But then I wanted radical changes in tone in, in from poem to poem. And from section I,
0: to section. And from section yeah. to section and to yeah. try
1: to get a sort of um, tonal music going on <laughs> from poem to poem. There's a poem that comes one or two after the first one, why don't you pick up the phone, which is really sort of a a smart ass tone. <laughs> Love to butt is another one.
0: You say no smart ass. I do. You're talking to the reader there. Yes.
1: And I, I wanted that variation, that sort of note, note, another note. Because the the book had no obvious it had obvious thematic echoes, but it didn't have like an obvious triggering event that a section was built around and I definitely didn't want it to be another book where you take all the parent poems and put them in one section, a landscape in another, and I w- w- did not want to go there. It took me two years to get the order right. It was crazy-making.
0: Incidentally, I'm just going back to, uh, this is in part two, mm-hmm. goodwill. He's on his knees.
1: Yes, that's a good point. Like uh. a child. And like a supplicant.
0: And sort of like that girl, little girl you were talking about. He doesn't have much choice. He has to like this job. Maybe I could get you to read this one. Sure,
1: I'd be happy to. Goodwill. On his knees, the new employee adds more black shoes to the black shoes rack. His manager floats by in a leopard moo-moo, says, Good job, Johnny. When you're done, your shift's up, so punch out for today. He raises his face to each customer, says sir or ma'am, offers help which no one takes, his face wide and eager as a child's. It's a new job to arrange black shoes which smell like people's feet, to offer unsolicited assistance, and to like it. This first day has gone very well indeed. Yeah, it's again this sort of acceptance of what is. Yeah. This man's face.
0: And it gets back for me to the cover. There's a delightful humor to that, and yet quite a profound sadness as well.
1: Yeah. That poem, I'd never made the connection with the ape on the cover, but you're right. You're right. And it's also, it's again, it's the raised face. It's looking down at at someone who's not smaller, but because he's on his knees, is is below from a higher vantage point. You're you're absolutely right. <laughs> 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 We're looking at the cover again. I was so ecstatic that when he agreed to let us use that.
0: So you sought out this this image.
1: I was having a great time cutting and pasting all kinds of images from the Internet of monkeys, a lot of photographs, <laughs> and I was cropping details and trying to figure out what kind of image we could use and who we approach. And my husband remembered this guy. My husband used to work for Chronicle Books, and they put out a book of his work.
0: And wh- who's the guy?
1: His name is Donald Roller Wilson, he lives in Arkansas. He's extremely eccentric and funny. And he paints these creatures. I mean, this, this monkey is the tamer end of his work. It gets really scatological, some of it.
0: Okay. He, he
1: does monkeys, and he, does, he also does some dogs and cats, but mainly um, apes and, and orangutans of various stripes. Yeah, he has a website. DonaldRollerWilson.com.
0: I'm speaking with Julie Brock, who has won Canada's Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry, 2012, and we're talking about the book that won that award, called Monkey Ranch.
1: And she's shaking her head when you say that.
0: (laughs) She's in a state of denial, (laughs) disbelief.
1: Yeah, I keep thinking it's that's going to change, but it hasn't happened yet.
0: I again just subjective. I found that the first section was the most powerful, and I love this poem, but I think it's hit the chords. I go with Martin Amis, who talks about when critiquing, the best thing you can do is just quote. I mean, the poem is the poem, so you don't mind.
1: Okay. Snapshot at Ushmal, 1972. Leaning into the sun-warmed stone, she must be 50, still beautiful, Her strong frame easy inside her loose shirt and jeans. He's gone to a larger ruin for the day, someplace deeper in the jungle, more challenging to reach by jeep or tank. Here where the early Mayans worshipped the sun, appeased their gods with routine live sacrifice, she will photograph only the small details in black and white. Later, he'll describe the jungle's colors ornate bird plumage, the vast scale of what he saw. She will need the afternoon to document a single weed growing through a crack in the pediment, a candy wrapper blown against an ancient step. And there is the daughter, 15 and not quite as sullen as she's going to be, shouldering the pack of lenses, her mother's fine-grained film. Her father's impatience hasn't flared in her yet. Though she carries that too, an unstruck match, trailing her mother through the tall dry grass. That's a portrait of a marriage.
0: Male, big thinker, female, detail.
1: Mm hmm. Close up female, long view male.
0: And George Murray noticed that in his Globe and Mail review. He mentioned that you use different lenses. Oh, I
1: that's think. right, yeah.
0: Oscillation of the camera lens. Mm hmm. Do you think that's accurate?
1: Yeah, I think it's accurate in some of the poems, and I think he's onto something because I was a photographer when I was younger. I think it's carried over. I think I I frame things and pull focus, and so I think he was onto something. Definitely, I hadn't thought about it in those terms until <laughs> until he brought it up.
0: That's a good thing <laughs> but, uh, about letting it out into the world, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it is, and it's oh, it's so interesting what people find. You know, teach you to read your own work.
0: Is there any kind of feeling that you want people to come away with or new thoughts?
1: I don't really have a sort of didactic intent with these poems.
0: You I want, want people them to read them. Though.
1: I want them to read them and I want them to feel things in them. And if I've done my job, they will. But I'm quite open to the fact that, that a lot of readers are going to feel different things about the same poem. That's okay. I mean, what would I want them to take away? Just the sense that this world has a lot of conflicting things going on at the same time.
0: Good and bad.
1: Yeah, good and bad and difficult and joyful and fierce and scared and all of those things. But I really don't have an agenda with these poems.
0: Survival kit?
1: Uh, no. I live in earthquake country, too.
0: But is there a survival kit that you can take from this book?
1: Well, it's my survival kit. Because if I couldn't engage with the world in language and describe, find my way by describing things, I wouldn't have a compass. It really is my way of of navigating through the world. Could I prescribe this as a survival kit for someone else? I don't think I would presume that. But that's that definitely is my way of... There's an old chestnut. I don't know if it's Forrester or somebody said, how do I know what I feel until I see what I say? That's definitely part of my impulse, is I can only start to understand the world by writing it.
0: Writing so, uh, generates the writing.
1: It, yeah, and the writing generates, if not clarity, at least some sense of balance.
0: Balance to the chaos.
1: Yeah, and it, uh, on good days a sense of peace. Yeah, It's not easy it's being not, a
0: poet, I guess.
1: It's not diamond mining.
0: <laughs> well, maybe it is. It's, you're looking for diamonds, aren't you? Oh, I guess you are. When ch-
1: you're chipping away. There, you don't risk life and limb in quite the same way.
0: Although uh, it's out in the world now, so you might take a few bruises alongside this this wonderful affirmation.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that there will be bruises. There have been bruises in the past, and I survived. I think we all survive. Once poems are in a book, and once I've done what I you know everything I can do, they really have less to do with me than they used to. That um, they're no longer, I hope, about me and my life and my kid and relationships I see, but that they're about things that are common to all of us, and that we hopefully can read our own experiences into. So
0: Feel that sense of, if not peace, then comfort, that you're not alone.
1: Yeah, I think that's what poetry is, is, is just a voice, talking to other voices, and communication. I'm very traditional, I suppose, in that way, but I really think about the poem as a form of communication.
0: Just winding down, there are poets who are willfully obscure. What do you think about that kind of poetry?
1: (laughs) Um, I don't have a lot of patience for it. I'm always trying to engage with things that are as far from my own impulses as possible, just to sort of, I read promiscuously and I want to understand. But I don't really understand the impulse that drives it, and I certainly don't. Um, I'm not interested in in work that sort of rejects language because everything is a signifier and all. That. I, I just it's Greek to me, you know. I I really I'm so so married to communication that. Um,
0: well, and as a reader, as a as a common reader. Mm-hmm. That's what I crave. I crave someone who has something to say to me,
1: who makes me see the world in, or make, reminds me of, shows me ways of seeing the world that I might not have seen otherwise. I mean, I'm always looking for that when I read. Mm-hmm. Always looking for yeah. it, and just you know, I want the top of my head to be taken off, as Dickinson said, or whatever. Whatever her, she had a much better way of putting it. But
0: yeah, I think Irving Leighton ripped that off too. He wanted the readers to feel like he torn their skin off. <laughs> Male. <laughs>
1: there was also um, Jarrell's line, Randall Jarrell, about, uh, I think it's the end of the woman at the, woman at the Washington Zoo saying to the tiger or the panther. Now I'm, I'm conflating this with Rilke's poem of this woman saying to, to these creatures, you see what I was, you see what I am, change me, change me. That to me is what it's all about. Yeah, I am thinking about Rilke too, that archaic torso of Apollo at the end of that where he's describing this headless, archaic torso and he's funneling all of this energy into this thing that starts coming out of the stone for the reader and the last line is, also out of nowhere, you must change your life. Because this thing is so much more life-filled than the person beholding it. Centuries old, headless, torso.
0: Yeah, I guess the fact that language only gets you so far in conveying reality has been done to death.
1: Yeah, you I mean the thinking about that. Yeah, an image has so much potency. We we think in ideas and we feel in images. And I want to feel when I read. I, I really want um, all the little hairs on my arms to be suddenly animated. <laughs> yeah. The rest feels like math. <laughs> <laughs> and I hated math.
0: <laughs> too logical, I guess. It's no room for interpretation.
1: Or illogical. I'm not sure, but it's maybe too logical. Yeah. No no room for fun. Well, that's... Oh, boy, a someone could take, actually, someone could take exception to what I just said. I may be wrong with that. Because there's probably a lot of playfulness in a lot of language stuff. But
0: Well, you know, cryptic crossword puzzles are fun, but only to an extent. And I suppose coming up with a solution to a math question can be really fulfilling uh, in a way that you can't find in poetry. Uh, You find your answer, not the answer.
1: Right. You mean a poem should find your your answer, not the answer? Yeah.
0: There is no the the answer for a poem. For a
1: poem, right. Thank God. There's also a sense in a really successful poem of the poem having been a journey and an experience, having a sort of organic whole and shape and so that when you reach the end of the poem somehow... The reader? Yeah, you're, you're brought back to the beginning and you're sort of... It, it's, a, it's a whole experience and I don't get that when I'm reading disconnected language, you know?
0: Who do you love?
1: I love Elizabeth Bishop, no surprise. Not though. just poets? Oh, who do I love? People?
0: Whoever, who do you love?
1: I love Leonard Cohen, <laughs> he's the man. I love my husband and my daughter. I love Kay Ryan, not just poets. I love Richard Thompson, the singer-songwriter from Britain, he was originally with Fairport Convention. I'm a complete, I'm a groupie, but I'm too old to be a groupie, and he's too old to have groupies. I'm crazy about my brother, who's a death penalty lawyer. I'm, I love a lot of people. I love my friends. I love my crazy mother.
0: Who was also a poet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she was a student of Irving Leighton's when I was a kid. And then she stopped writing for a number of years, which made it safe for me to take it up. And then once I had my second book out, she got back in the game. (laughs) The (laughs) competitive spirit. Oh, my God. She published her first book at 85. Yeah yeah I love um, the park near where I live that's full of people and of all shapes and sizes and creatures and I love San Francisco I love Montreal better than anywhere on earth that I've ever been. Yeah it's always going to be you know there's an expression in bullfighting Carencia, where the, the when the bull is wounded and it, it it's going to die. This, is sort of, this sounds so grim. But, but when the bull is going to die, it apparently finds a place in the ring to curl up that it feels safe in, and they refer to it as the cadencia. Montreal is my cadencia.
0: A bolt hole.
1: A bolt hole? Where Same bol-
0: idea, where you bolt to when you're in danger, or so do you feel comfort there.
1: Comfort, yeah.
0: Or home, or whatever, yeah. safe. Yeah. This answer that you've given is... I see a lot of it in this book.
1: Mm-hmm. Places of refuge.
0: The family, and the, you'd say Montreal is referred to, whenever snow appears in there.
1: Yeah, Montreal and the Laurentians are in there, which was I spent a lot of time in St. Severa as a kid.
0: So there's Canadian content There's there. Canadian
1: content. There's the Dawson, the terrible shooting at Dawson College is in there. There's British Columbia. There's a bunch of, mm-hmm. yeah, Canadian things in there, too. But, um... I love Montreal, Boy, I, I when I was back for the, the nominee's reading, we all read together at the Atwater Library, went out afterwards for drinks, and I walked back, I was staying with my mother, and I walked west on St. Catherine Street at like 12.30 at night by myself, and it was raining, the street was shining, and it was pretty sketchy at that hour, it's kind of bombed out that part of mm-hmm. town these days, and I just didn't care, I just was in love with the pavement itself, <laughs> you know, it just felt so good to be back smell of the place is just so familiar and it's really home.
0: You could go back?
1: Not, not, right, not, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe one day. I'm trying to get my head around something that Heather McHugh told me a number of years ago about having left a place that you've lived in for a long time and she she said, you don't really leave it, you, you carry it with you and it's always with you. And at the time, I I was missing Montreal so much, it was sort of like a stomach ache, low grade, you know, ache all the time, that I thought, oh, that sounds like pap. You know, it sounds like the kind of things friends say to each other just to shut them, <laughs> make them feel better, and s- just stop them from complaining. And um, it's turned out to be true. I mean, I've just sort of realized that that place is in my marrow. It's really part of, it's like a bone. You, it really is a part of who you are.
0: In a way, if you have this wonderful, Sense of belonging there, and you 're not there that that must stimulate something
1: it does, and i 've always written from a slight remove, so for me, this is not new it 's just another camera angle <laughs> there you go again yeah, but i 've said this before in the last couple of weeks i 'm sick of my own voice, but I think it it's part of it. I grew up in Quebec as an Anglophone, I went to school in Protestant Westmount as an assimilated Jew, so I'm not really Jewish and I'm not really a Westmounter and I'm not really a Quebecer and I'm not really Canadian because my parents were originally from the States but I'm not American because I'm a Canadian so my whole take on the world has always been just sort of slightly to one side of the the parade it's it's just my stance it's not a particularly alienated or alienating feeling because it's just my temperament and I think Growing up in Quebec was a part of that.
0: Being a beast, but not being a beast. <laughs> Fish nor fowl. <laughs> Again, this image on the front cover. She's a beast, but she's not a beast. Yeah. She's angelic, and she's...
1: Insightful. Oh. and she's She's got an old soul, don't you think? Despite her party dress.
0: Yeah, it's just so fun just to look at it. I know.
1: When you look at orangutans and mandrills and all of those creatures, they're so much like us.
0: Yeah, they're so much like us, and yet they're so much...
1: Other, but they're just their behavior and their grooming and their arguing and their chasing each other, and they're so much like we are unbridled.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for uh, putting her on the cover.
1: Thank you, Donald Roller Wilson, and the owner of that painting, for letting us send a photographer and use her. He was really nice about it.
0: And she does open up a terrific door into these poems, I think. So um, uh, thank you for those as well.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for talking with me about them.
0: I've been speaking with Julie Bruck, who has just won the Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry with her book Monkey Ranch. Published by Brick Books, a good Canadian publisher.
1: I love Brick. They've done all my books. What a team those guys are. Are you you familiar with them?
0: I am. Why are they such a great team?
1: They're great editors. I mean, I've worked with two editors there, and they've both been absolutely awesome to work with. Who are Um, they? The first one was Marnie Parsons, and she's now living in Newfoundland and not editing for them anymore. But I, I worked with her on the first two books, and I just worked with Elena Muntz, on Monkey Ranch, and she w- they were just both so great and asked, made me second-guess every choice that I'd made and flail around on my own and decide what needed to be done, but it w- there were such good questions and smart questions and so helpful, and yet never really directive, always just... I gave her what I thought was, or what she said was a finished manuscript. She said, oh, it's really nice to have something that's this close, to I thought, oh great! You know, I thought I've been working on it for a long time. I thought it was pretty close too.
0: Twelve years. You're yeah. Working that long, but that's the I- interval between
1: between books. Yeah. yeah. And I, I had been doing a lot of, I thought finishing on it, and she said, um, I just have a couple of questions. <laughs> six hundred pages of drafts later, yeah, six hundred
0: pages. <laughs> so she was a taskmaster.
1: She was wonderfully, yeah, yeah. I couldn't even hate her because she was so good. <laughs> <laughs> she was a taskmaster, and I was really, really pleased that she was uh, as tough as she was. So she's going to be here for the GG. Oh, great. Yeah, can Share
0: here. it with her then.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, congratulations once again.
1: Thank you so much.